Welcome to Left, Right, and Unwanted, the podcast where people across the political spectrum discuss ideas and politics. I'm Lauren, and I'm the left. I'm Morgan, and I'm the right. I'm Luke, and I'm the unwanted. 41, he first talks about how the commodities dominion was first exerted over the economy with the Industrial Revolution, the division of labor, the commodity was now a power which occupied social life, and then the political economy takes shape. And then in 42, he talks about how The spectacle is the moment when the commodity has attained the total occupation of social life. At first, we were alienated from labor, and now we're really alienated from our own lives. Um, And we are now controlled by the spectacle. I do think, and I know we had a little hiatus in the middle of two, but I think we're talking about it at an opportune time with Black Friday shopping and the holiday season about to kick off. Because I think that's really where you start to see a lot of these parallels and practices that he described because the holiday commercials are already rolling out and commodification goes way up during the holiday season because the emphasis is on creating the experience you want for your family and friends and buying the right things. And I guess kind of taking commodity to make the holiday that you want to have. And I see, I think I see this more with Thanksgiving and Christmas because in sort of like, if you look at the origins of Thanksgiving as a harvest festival, it's about, it's this time of abundance that we're not, we get to feast because we have all this food and we're not worried about where it's gonna come from. And now you could go out and have a Thanksgiving really any time of the year now because of the economy and how built up it is. You could get a turkey and you know all, all the different things that you need for it. But so Thanksgiving is now transferred into this holiday where it can be about family or it can be about presenting the image of the idyll- idyllic family. Every, a lot of shows, especially like sitcoms, will have like the Thanksgiving episode and then you kind of mimic it yourself. And that's really more what it's about now than it is about really being thankful because we have food. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll have this extra feast. You have your like Thanksgiving with your family and then you have Friendsgiving and it's, um, gets put on Instagram and Facebook, the pretty dishes and, you know, everybody's fall outfits. And it's, I mean, it's a spectacle or it can be, I guess. Well, right. And you said there's like the family Thanksgiving and then there's the Friendsgiving. And then my work does something for Thanksgiving. We have one at work. And if you have Mm -hmm. multiple friend groups, you probably do multiple Friendsgiving. Mm -hmm. So at some point, I mean, how many times do you perform the little holiday? So in, in 42, he, he talks about how he, he mentioned sort of two industrial revolutions. So alienated production is sort of the first industrial revolution. So you get alienated from the products of your labor because now you're working at a factory and you're just sort of doing the same job over and over again. You have no control and you don't have control over the process and you're just selling your labor to someone else. And then in the second industrial revolution, it's now alienated consumption. Now you're sort of being told what to consume and you don't have control over that. And that's really what he's getting at with the spectacle. People are talking about the fourth industrial revolution is big data. And Mm. they keep saying that. And I don't know, I guess the third one is the internet. I don't know. But apparently there's four industrial revolutions now, according to Mm. the ads on, I think it's on TuneIn. It's a way of describing the blurring of boundaries between the physical, digital, and biological world, which sounds like AI and big data. Yeah, that sounds uh, scary. When the Industrial Revolution started, work, I mean, if you're the employer or the, the powers that be, I don't know, the 
the bourgeoisie or whatever. You just cared about what your employee, employee did at the factory. Once he was out of the factory, he's gone. He can do whatever he wants. Now, all of life is controlled at the factory and at home. At home, you know, you're, you're, you're now the consumer because you have to consume the products that we're making. And you have to create the demand for the products that we're making. So we need you to go home and demand the products that you then come to work and produce and then go home and demand them is sort of what he's trying to get at. He's arguing people need to be employed now, not just to create products, but to make enough wages that they can then purchase the products that their labor has created. I mean, most retail stores, you have to wear the clothes. If you're working or wearing clothes, you can buy at the store. He gets a little more at what you referenced in 43, Luke, where he says, Mm -hmm. once his workday is over, the worker is suddenly redeemed from the total contempt toward him that is so clearly implied by every aspect of the organization and surveillance of production and finds himself seemingly treated like a grown-up with a great show of politeness in his new role as a consumer. So once you leave work, once you leave the production process, you are a necessary part and making sure the products created are being purchased. And then he says kind of what we just talked about, at that point, the commodity is now taking over your leisure time because the thing you're working so hard to make is also influencing your off hours because that's what you're expected to go and spend your wages on and your free time consuming. There's this idea and you see it sometimes, it's like, oh, these companies are so good at manipulating you into buying the product and with marketing and stuff, they can just psychologically push the pressure points on your brain to make you buy stuff. That kind of ties into this where it's almost like he makes it seem like the worker has to buy this stuff. He's controlled into buying this stuff. And it's just, but my question is, if that's true, why do companies spend so much money on market research to try to figure out what people want? If they can make you buy whatever they want, why are they spending all this money trying to figure out I don't know. It seems to me that it's really more along the lines of companies have just gotten really good at figuring out what people want. They want non-stick pans because if you ever cooked with a non-stick pan, if you ever cooked with a stick pan, it sucks. An item like a non-stick pan, yes. I, I think most people would argue if they had the choice between the sticky pan and the non-stick, they would take the non-stick. But for leisure items or for books or video games, things like that, don't they kind of build on each other? So isn't some of knowing what the consumer wants dependent on what you've already provided to the consumer? Like if I make this video game for others in the series, whoever played my first game, there's a stronger likelihood they'll want the other things I'm creating. Yeah, I can see that. Putting myself into where he's looking at when he's in the age of, I guess he's in Europe, but he's in the age of the three network channels. So he is pre-internet, where it seems like now, talking about shows, you really did consume just what you were given. You didn't have, you didn't have choice. Mm-hmm. Now you have so much more choice in video games, in TV, in movies, in books, literature. I mean, I can instantaneously get any kind of book in any kind of genre. Like podcasts. Yeah. And I think now it's like what you're, like what you're saying, it's a lot easier to find any variation of what you want. But then you have, I guess, to look at more of the brainwashing side of things, you have like the big brands, I think is where it comes into play more like with Apple. Okay, well, they released a new iPhone. We gotta go get the new iPhone. We gotta go get the new AirPods. Need to get the latest computer. And and people can be very brand loyal, but I can see it coming coming into relevance more with more with things like 
the brands. Brand loyalty is kind of a new weird concept. And it's, I mean, it's in electronics now too, because that's really one of the most important things in our lives before it was like cars back when cars were like the mm-hmm. most important thing. Like, you know, I hear my uncles and cousins, you know, Oh, you have a drop Ford, you should get a Chevy. You don't have to work on it as much. To what extent was like, did brand loyalty exist before? I mean, I know cars, but did people argue over like, you have a Colt and you get a Smith and Wesson, you pussy. I don't, I don't know. Just like that. It was, <laughs> there you go. I guess on the, on the good side. Yeah. There was that brand loyalty, but on the entertainment side, I mean, because there's so many things now that are sold just free of charge. If you think about podcasts or, you know, fan fiction or so many things where people just write it and provide it free of charge or with like the Patreon model where people just pay kind of what they think the product is worth. And that's a whole new dimension to to consumerism because the consumer has so much. I think that arguably the consumer has more power than the producer at that point, if you're looking at, you know, those kinds of very low cost to enter markets where anyone can just start a podcast. Um, suddenly now you really start have a to- a YouTube be, channel. Yeah, you really have to be providing something the consumer wants rather than, you know, you kind of had to watch Gunsmoke because it was the only show on. And then there's the question of once you start your podcast or your YouTube channel or whatever you make, if it's interactive, do you tailor your content to your new consumer base or do you assume what you wanted attracted people in the first place? Do you just follow your own interests as scheduled or a little bit of both? I mean, how then does the consumer influence what content you're creating? Yeah, it comes down. I mean, you'll hear it with TV shows a lot, the idea of fan service, you know, are they doing it because that's where they wanted to go with the story? Um, because to some extent, you know, I think you do have to trust the creator and they're the, like, like you were saying, Lauren, there's the ones who were coming up with what you liked in the first place. So there's some level of trust versus, yeah, just giving the people what they say they want. Look at the last season of Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. <laughs> Complete yeah, lack of fan thinking. service. And look what happened to the franchise. People went from not being able to get enough of it to now if you mention it, some people just go, oh. Because they can't stand to talk about it anymore. I could go on a rant about the last season of Game of Thrones. I was going to go the other way, with, which is that fan services ruined shows because people are morons and the average Morlock who's out there watching TV doesn't know a good story. So they want all the conflicts to be resolved like that. They want it to be fan fiction. Yeah, they want the, the, the people that they like, that they ship to get together immediately and not have any problems. And that's it's just like, not, that's not a good story if there's no conflict. With relationships, you hear about, you know, the moonlighting curse when the minute the couple gets together, the show tanks. Yeah, right. you know, conflict is what drives stories. Speaking of the fourth industrial revolution and automation and AI, he talks about how automation drives the commodity world toward the contradiction. The technical equipment, which eliminates labor, has to preserve labor because it's the source of the commodity. Basically, if automation just produces everything, then people aren't working to get the money to buy stuff, and that causes a contradiction. So automation has to create new jobs. Otherwise, no one's going to be buying the products that it's creating. Right. One of my first thoughts with this was just 
Amazon as a concept because it has, I mean, and it's in the news for many, many reasons, but it has a lot of automation, but it also has a lot of processes that are automated to a point and then rely on humans to finish it out. It's not like automation is going to completely eliminate all jobs because there's always going to be something more we want. It's not like automation can satisfy every single need we ever have. So there's always going to be, even as automation increases, there's going to be more and more demands for human, you know, things new human Right. Yeah. But, the, but there is a, there is a point that some people have made that the problem is that this basically means that automation replaces the simplest, least brain intensive jobs. Mm-hmm. And the jobs that are created from automation are more brain intensive. So basically people that aren't as intelligent are being left behind because their jobs are being automated away. And the jobs that are being created are for more intelligent people. So you're going to have this divide where you have all these people that can't work. At that point, if that's what happens, and if things are automated to a point where jobs that require fewer skills or fewer mental processes are replaced or are eliminated, is it necessary to still provide those jobs? Is it expected that everybody transition and is only prepared for jobs at a different level of intellect? At that point, what do you do? I mean, is it a responsibility to keep those jobs available so that everyone who wants one can have one, regardless of ability or inclination? Or does everyone have to adapt? The argument that basically less intelligent people won't be able to have jobs is one of the arguments of the UBI, uh, the universal basic income people. Their argument is basically, rather than having humans less efficiently perform tasks, Let's just replace them with machines and then use the surplus money that we have and the surplus resources we have to meet the basic needs of people that don't have jobs. I think it's a horrible solution because people need a purpose in life. And if they don't have a purpose, then they're just going to medicate and be unhappy. It's also going to remove any incentive to find a new job, a new place for yourself in society because you don't need to. And and I don't think we're anywhere near that. Um, I think the people that are talking about this live in like San Francisco and New York City. Have you ever gone out to a field and there's so much out here that humans can still do? Like we haven't completely dominated (laughs) nature yet. We're not even close. The stores that like specifically have jobs for, you know, people with Down syndrome or various reasons that they might not be able to get a job at like a normal place. You have, and you have places, I mean, just like you have places that like hire convicts to help them out. Um, I mean, you see, you see stores like that here and there. It's just not the, what, it's not what is most common or expected. Well, and of course, if you keep raising the minimum wage, then you're going to create even more automation because at a certain level, automation is going to be cheaper than cheaper. artificially, artificially high wages. Raising the minimum wage though, I think is driving the opposite in motivation though. Like, I mean, I know what I make and I don't make much. And this summer, there's going to be Starbucks employees who out earn me. Once, yeah, it starts getting raised too much. If it's cheaper to work jobs that you don't need college degrees for, you're going to have people not go to college because they can go to Starbucks and make more. The point of having a job is to make money. How could you fault somebody for that? I mean, if the whole point of having a job is to support yourself and provide for your family and keep yourself comfortable enough to do what you want to do, I couldn't fault somebody for leaving a highly stressful career 
and going somewhere that pays just as much for a different level of commitment to the work. So in 46, he talks again about exchange value and use value, which I think we've dealt with before. You know, objects have use value where you can use them for things and they have exchange value. We can exchange them. The base of the modern economy is things are now valued based on what they exchange for rather than what they're used for. And this is method of alienation. In, in 48, he gets into use value and that must now be explicitly proclaimed because it's factual reality is eroded by the overdeveloped commodity economy. So is he getting at you know, in pre-commodity culture, what's the use value of you know, a house, an ax, whatever? It's pretty obvious. You, know, you use an axe to cut down trees so you can start fires, so you can build a house, get shelter, all that kind of stuff. And now you have to explain what the use of something is. So you'll be like, you see this ring light? You can put it on your phone and then you can take better selfies. And that's what it's there for. And so in the past, you wouldn't have been given something and like had to been explained what you use it for. And now that's pretty common. Is that what he's getting at? I took it the same way you did because next to 48, I wrote pop it. And I don't know how much time you guys spend around small children, but that's automatically what this made me think of because it's these little silicone toys and they're actually kind of addicting to play with, but all it is, it's like infinite bubble wrap. You just keep popping it in and out. And it's something until it was explained to me by a small child, I didn't understand what it was meant for. I mean, I thought it could be a counting tool or I thought it was maybe a teething ring or something. And then a kid showed me what it was intended to be used for. I think clothes a lot is probably this because like, I mean, yeah, clothes are a necessity, but then there's stylish clothes. You have to wear your clothes this way. And why are these shoes more important than these? They seem like they're just as good at, you know, the basic keeping your foot safe. Oh, but no, but these are Air Jordans. Could this even be taken clothes for purposes? Like there's clothes you wear when you're at home versus clothes you wear to the office. Like it used versus to be our special sleeping clothes. clothes. Yeah. Like your clothes were your clothes. And now if you don't have the clothes for the activity that you're going to, you're viewed differently by people. Like if you dress them properly for a wedding. I don't know. I don't think that if that's what he's getting at, I wouldn't agree with him because I think ceremonial clothes have been around for a long, 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 those, you know, ancient Mm -hmm. civilization, you know, you put the robes on to go chant around at the winter solstice. And those are your winter solstice robes or even, I mean, to go to Downton Abbey, um, you know, you, these are, these are the clothes you wear when you go deer stocking. These are the clothes that you wear to dinner. And you wouldn't Even wear in, your lunch clothes to dinner. I and mean, that's a no-no. Well, there's more stuff now. Like, do I have this set of clothes for biking, but these are my hiking clothes. And then these I go out to dinner in, but these I go see my parents wearing. Like there's more compartmentalization almost. Like even if it's been around for a while, it's getting more fractalized because each kind of kind of like like a Barbie. Like you buy a Barbie and then you can buy a thousand different potential outfits for whatever Barbie's up to. I don't know. I could see that, but I can also see the argument that really clothes are collapsing and you just kind of wear what's comfortable. Like if someone showed up to the, like, like we got away with, we got rid of our dress game because of COVID. And so hmm. now you can basically wear whatever you want to the office. And that but, wouldn't have been something that you didn't previously airport fashion has completely 
flipped because you used to have to dress up to go to the airport because it was special and um, because it was so expensive and not very many people could fly. And then now, I mean, I push back. I mean, even from when I used to go to the airport when I was younger with like my parents, I was told to dress up. And then as I got into high school, my parents would still dress up. And I was like, I'm not, I'm wearing sweatpants or leggings because (laughs) I want to be comfortable to sit in that tiny seat for hours. Yeah. I guess church clothes. I was never allowed to wear jeans, like no denim at church whatsoever. And you see it everywhere now and it's not double denim, super noticeable, you know, like it's not even a big deal. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Jumping back to 48, I could kind of see it like with clothes and stuff, but my brain did go more towards like physical items, like tools or entertainment. Those tea bag strainers that are designed to look like cats or something. Or maybe at first glance, you think it's decorative and then you have to find out like, oh, it's a tea bag strainer. An eyelash curler. The first person who invented an eyelash curler, that doesn't look like it should do anything. Serving dishes. Because you can you can yeah. serve mashed potatoes in the pot you make them. You make them, yeah. But no, you I can't. Mean, it's serving. illegal. China, find China. So we we didn't register for China because I was asked if we wanted any. And I kind of checked with my mom and I said, well, what do you think is that? And she pulled me aside and she said, look, I got China when I got married. It's still in the box it came in. I've moved it five times and it's still in the box. And she said, you don't want that. So we don't have any. But does that think does China is kind of go against his argument because I think fine China and stuff like that would have been a much bigger deal in sort of the 19th and early 20th centuries before the spectacle really gained power and i mean it, it is a spectacle thing because it's not necessary it's it's, a, it's an ostentatious display of wealth that you have fine china and you have yet, a special cabinet to display your fine yeah. china and you go those are our dishes we don't eat on and yes but look at them <laughs> and yet as the spectacle is theoretically according to war gained more and more power it's gone away as a thing that we value or use So, I mean, it's not that it's not a status symbol. I mean, if you go to someone's house and you see a China cabinet, you do have certain assumptions you make about them, but it's not like I go to people's houses and I automatically think, well, where's their China? Mm -hmm. I mean, if I see it, I understand what it means, but I've never left someone's house wondering where it was. Jumping to 49, he talks about how the spectacle is the other side of money. So uh, in in a previous thesis, a thesis we talked about um, how, Money in that alley enables calculation because you things that previously were so different that you couldn't use the same unit to define them. Now you can because mm-hmm. you can put a money value on everything. And he says money dominated society is the representation of general equivalence, the exchangeability of different goods whose uses cannot be compared. And the spectacle is the modern comp- complement uh, as a general equivalence for what the entire society can be and can do. I'm less following him here because I can see how you can say this is twenty dollars. This is worth five dollars. But what's the? There's not a unit for the spectacle. So I literally wrote "hmm" by forty nine when I read this, and where he lost me is when he said the spectacle is money one can only look at because in it all use has already been exchanged for the totality of abstract representation. So again, at that point. 
you said the spectacle doesn't have a specific unit. I feel like when people view the spectacle, we see evidence of having or not having money or what money can buy. But I think part of the point of the spectacle needs to be money feels secondary. If the spectacle is truly about experience and about consumerism for the sake of consumerism and all of this mass production, I think focusing on the money of it almost snaps you out of being in the spectacle. So if money allows you to compare things that really aren't comparable, is the spectacle allowing you to compare things that really aren't comparable to, I guess, like YouTube. So if you think about YouTube, there is a unit and that's a news. So you can compare what's the, what, how much better is a kitten sneezing than um, a guy getting kicked in the balls. And you really can't compare those two experiences, but when you have the spectacle of YouTube, I mean, YouTube, you can be like, this one's this many views, this one's this many views. I don't know, that's, that's the closest I can get to it, I guess. Okay, so kind of reducing things to a common social exchange unit so that you can look at entirely different experiences and consume them in the same way. Yeah, views, likes, mm-hmm. non-monetary ways of comparing different experiences. So if I post a photo and you both post a different photo, we're all different people with different circles, but we could see who gets the most likes and assume our photos better. Something from them. I guess. So have to, I mean, and that's the specific instances. And you also have to look at how many subscribers or friends or whoever they have that are going to be shown that directly versus having it shared via other means. I also struggle with this because he says almost in the same breath, the spectacle is the flip side of money. And then he continues to say the spectacle is the modern complements of money. And I'm unsure how it could both be the flip side and the complements. Well, is it tied to 51 where he's talking about how the victory of the autonomous economy is at the same time it's defeat? So the prosperity created by it has eliminated economic necessity, which was delineated in dollars. And then economic necessity and and the satisfaction of primary human needs is replaced by the fabrication of pseudo needs. So suddenly it's not about, do I have enough food or shelter? It's, do I have enough followers? Am I a big enough influencer? Money sort of goes away and these alternate things become more important. I mean, you wouldn't buy followers if money was more important than Followers. I mean, that kind of implies that at least some amount of money is less valuable than more followers. So that's kind of become the new yeah. primary thing. Or yeah, either you're getting something from the more followers, but then sometimes the more followers leads to more money sponsors. But that still implies there's a certain line where money is less valuable than even if one leads to the other there's still a point when you're spending money, the money you've spent on this is less valuable than the potential payoff. Mm -hmm. If you have multiple. That Mm -hmm. would connect pseudo use to pseudo need. 
So maybe it does tie together. So he, he kind of closes by saying, by talking about the emergence of the individual and the subject from society and that he compares the consciousness for desire and the desire for consciousness seeks the abolition of the classes and the workers possession of every aspect of their activity. So, and then he says the opposite. So that's basically the opposite of the spectacle um, where there's total alienation and a class-based society. Which we were wondering at the beginning of this, what is the point? Like, why is he writing this down? Where does he see himself in it? This is the first time he's explicitly stated the opposite of the spectacle and what would directly stand in opposition to this world he's describing, which is awareness. So I think that would, at least for now, give us confirmation that his primary purpose in writing this, I mean, if we assume he wants to dismantle the spectacle, this is an awareness-based piece. And his goal is to bring awareness to start taking the spectacle down. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left, Right, and Unwanted. Please tune in next time.